I've got a, I've got a really, uh, um, my, I've got to introduce you to my family. Um, this is our roller coaster face picture that we took. Um, my wife, as Eric explained, she's from Bolivia. Um, we've been married, it'll be 10 years next month. And we just had our fourth child. If, if they're wearing red shirts, they were born in Bolivia. The blue shirts were born in Denver. Um, our oldest on the top there is Xander. He just turned nine last week. After them, is, next to him is Calvin, named after Calvin and Hobbes. Um, he's, he's filling the shoes very well of that. Um, Devonese, our, our strong-willed princess in the red on the bottom. And then our newest is a Maya, and there's a new, there's a new cartoon, PJ Masks. And one of the characters is Amaya. So I have two children named after cartoon characters. <laughs> and uh, I like to advertise that, obviously. So um, two things before I get into the sermon. Um, I always tell people, we're, we're six missionaries. Um, we, we, really, we count our kids. As, I, I, I don't believe that God would have called my wife and I into missions and then said, oh, I forgot you had four kids. They are, they are missionaries. We do a lot of things, and we're excited to have our kids involved in, in what we do. Obviously, they're kids still, and they, they, they have other things to do, but um, they're a very integral part of the ministry we do. Second thing is, we are your missionaries, and, and it's an honor and privilege for us to do that, to be an extension of the Panton ministry all the way down into another continent. So um, it's an honor to be here this morning and preach the word. Let me just pray before I um, get into this. Father, thank you. Thank you so much, Lord. Just as I was singing this morning and, and just kind of thinking um, my community of believers in Denver is, is getting ready to, to, to worship as well. Um, at the same time, in Bolivia, there's a, there's a church that is worshiping right now with us. And Lord, that's happened all over the earth this morning as we woke up because um, you are doing something with missions that is awesome. And it's awesome be, because it's bringing you glory, Lord. And so um, thank you that we can be a small part of that. And I just pray right now, Lord, speak through me. Um, and help your word to minister to us and change us. We don't want to leave here the same people that walked in, Lord. Um, do with us as you will, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2005, I found myself in a bar in La Paz, Bolivia at a heavy metal concert that was designed to reach out to the people that were in the bar. So had you rewound life just maybe three years and observed me, complete with a military haircut and not one article of leather clothing to my name, you would have been able to make sense of my, my own reflection on my being there in that situation. I remember watching the lead singer through a haze of smoke, right, groaning the lyrics. I just learned that Eric would have, would have loved this. And I was thinking to myself, how did I end up here? What am I doing here? A couple years later, this time in Bogota, Colombia, I remember getting nervous at the sound of prison doors rolling shut behind me. I had entered by my own free will into the Colombian jail with only a simple stamp on my hand that was later to be the proof that I was not a full-time prisoner. I looked at the now smudge stamp, the result of my sweating hands, and began to fear that my only guarantee that those doors would reopen was going to wash away by my own sweat. And with the metal gates closed up behind me, I thought to myself, how did I end up here? On another occasion, I visited the family of a friend I had made in the Dominican Republic, and he took me to the countryside where he'd been born, and after a day of traveling in a bus where this rooster kept pecking my side, <laughs> I was spent. 
I was happy that despite the poor conditions that the family lived in, um, I was given a twin bed to sleep in. And so what I wasn't aware of is the, the fact that, a fact that became evident throughout the night was that the twin bed I started the night in alone was not mine to enjoy alone. The night brought on several occasions, first my friend, then his cousin, and who knows who else into that twin bed that at the beginning of the night I thought was just mine. I found myself awake in the wee hours of the morning, kind of stuffed up against the wall, thinking to myself, how did I get here? And some of you here this morning will remember a time busing across Bolivia. We woke up to find that our bus had been stopped by a political demonstration short of our final destination. And after a long time of trying to figure out what to do, we realized there was nothing else to do but grab our luggage and start out across a field in search of some alternative transportation to take us the rest of the way. So the sun rising in the distance, I was uncertain what was going to happen. I was watching the team drag their luggage to the field, and I could hear Annette's thoughts, and she says, how did I end up here? <laughs> you see, early in my life, my plans were so clear and simple. The idea was to study engineering, work as an engineer, save up some money, buy a little cabin on a lake in Colorado or Alaska, and live the rest of my days comfortable and happy in that context. So at one point did I exit the highway I was on and end up in a bar in Bolivia or a prison in Bogota or sharing my twin bed with several Dominicans or dragging luggage across a field outside of Cochabamba. So for the last more than a decade, my family and I, we found ourselves on the streets of La Paz on a mission to reach shoe shiners. How did we end up there? so very far from the plans that I had made as a teenager for my life? Well, the answer to this question, I want to dive into a text that was brought to my attention by a shoeshiner named Ramiro. And it was Ramiro's understanding of this story and how it relates to his own story that has made it one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Mark chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read this story. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him on, out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, was say, for he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Excuse me. Or in verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steam bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city, and and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those, those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with, a, with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I feel like, okay, I feel like someone's wanting to do something. <laughs> Sorry, this is my first time doing the Britney Spears thing. I feel like I need to sing or something. So there's a lot to talk about in this story. Um, but this morning, I want to I make a careful analysis of the object, the economics, and the purpose of this little mission trip that Jesus took with his disciples. The object, the economics, and the purpose. So let's start with the object. The object of the trip... Uh, well, first of all, the story is, is a major clash of cultures. There's some clues in the text itself that show us that this small lake separated two very different worlds, but there's also a little understanding of history that will let us in to know what, what's going on here. The disciples start their trip on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, a Jewish stronghold where the worldview was that God is king and he has revealed himself to the Jews through holy scriptures. Here the culture kept busy discussing these scriptures and working to obey the laws and instructions of Moses and the prophets. And a person's value was determined by their ability to walk in that, in that understanding. For disciples, that side of the lake was very comfortable. It was very familiar. That was home for them. The other side of the lake, which is referred in this, in this passage to the Decapolis, which means ten cities, it's another story altogether. And it's important to realize that. The eastern shore was a Roman or Greek stronghold where the worldview was that Caesar was king. The culture was concerned mainly with human thought and what a person was capable of doing. And so your value is determined by your intelligence, your beauty, your athleticism, your accomplishments. For the Jewish people on the other side of the lake, especially including and probably especially the disciples, this was a land swarming with pagan gods, inappropriate beliefs, and despicable pigs. It was no place for a, a Jew and especially a respectable rabbi and his disciples to be. Just the thought of those pagan people would have made the disciples uncomfortable, much less a trip to go and visit them. So at some point, I was preparing the sermon, and I realized, you know what? My audience is going to have a, an understanding of what it's like to live on the shore of a lake. And I, was, I, I thought, more and more, I was like, and this lake has, it's a state, it's a state divider, Right? And so I talked with the Carters last night about that, and my assumptions were confirmed that, um, that there are some certain understandings of that other side, the other side of people. I don't think it's as extreme, as extreme as, as maybe we're dealing with here, but, um, but those Yankees across the way do enjoy their lower taxes, right? So there's certain things that, that come to mind. So, so that's what we have here. Of course, in this God-forsaken land on the other side of the lake, Jesus and his disciples have come upon this wretched man. For the locals, he was valueless, right? He had proved to be a real problem, couldn't be subdued, and he was essentially haunting the town from the tombs. And of course, the Jews would have had their own problems, right? 
He's living in a tomb, so he probably is lying next to the remains of people. That's, that's Judaism 101. You're unclean, right? Um, in another version, it talks about not only how he's beating himself, but he's cutting himself. So you, you have a, 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 um, sores all over, open, over your body from cutting. That means unclean too. And of course, he's possessed by a, not a, just a demon, but a legion of demons. This guy is hopeless. That's, that would have been the Jewish evaluation of the situation. Probably the one thing that both sides of this lake had in common was that neither had a place for this man. He's an outcast, an embarrassment, wherever he's found. And certainly, I can just imagine the, the disciples thinking, Jesus, you've made a mistake. You couldn't have meant to come to this place, right? And surely not to see this man. Today, there are two billion people on earth that are completely isolated from the gospel. This number does not include the people who have simply not chosen to be believers. So I'm not talking about your, maybe your family members or coworkers or friends that you, that you know who are not believers, but rather those who have never had a chance to be a believer. You see your family members, your coworkers, your friends, they have something that these two billion people don't have, you. They can say, I know, at least I know a believer. Those two million people don't even have that. So in other words, if nothing changes, there are two billion people who will live and die without ever meeting a Christian. They will spend their entire lives without ever reading one verse of Scripture in their native language. They will never see, much less experience, a church family. And they will enter eternity never knowing Jesus and what He has done for them. Their life will be void of true love and real hope, things sometimes we take for granted. And it's difficult to say this, but their lives will be hell and their final destination will be as well. So I, I studied engineering, so I've got to look at this number here real quick. So we throw around numbers like this. It's easy to misunderstand, underestimate their sheer magnitude. So let me help us grasp just how many people I'm talking about. Let's say that we could put together a list of all these two billion people, a list of two billion names. And let's say that you could actually pronounce each name in every second. I doubt that would be the case, but let's say you could. Every second you could read one name, and you were able to not sleep and just read this list for 24 hours a day until you got to the end. You would be reading that list for 63 years. That's how many people are, like I said, not just non-believers, isolated from the gospel. So anyway, let's go back to the story. The two worldviews world involved in the story would have easily counted the object of this short-term mission trip as unworthy of the effort. When he did pass into the people's thoughts, it was an, he was a nuisance, and his death or departure would have been celebrated if it was even noticed, right? Who's this man in your world? I've already made a case that he represents the two billion people isolated from Jesus on earth, but there are even more people than those two million who find themselves living in the land of the reached, reached, right? The addict, the lonely, the outcast, the annoying, the awkward, the undeserving, the enemy. We have got to pray and ask God to give us eyes like Jesus to see this world. Otherwise, we are far too susceptible of falling into the trap of seeing people as unworthy. The fact is actually that no one really is worthy, right? <laughs> but the good news is that Jesus overlooks that, and if we're following Jesus, we have to do likewise. I had a friend once when I was um, in college whose father was abusive. It's horrible, horrible situation. And I remember I would pray for my friend, and I would ask God to, to deal with her father. 
My prayers were eliminate him, um, punish him. I mean, those, that's what I was thinking. That was, so I remember how surprised I felt when one day my friend reported that her father had come to know the Lord. That had not been my prayer. <laughs> Why not, right? It's because I'm guilty of the same prejudice that these cultures had for the demon-possessed man. I counted my friend's father as unworthy and not changeable. And I regret to confess that I believe I do this more often than I'd like to admit. Nevertheless, from the point of view of the worldviews involved, the object of this trip would have never been given a positive review. For, for both the Greeks and the Jews involved, the object of this trip is not worth the venture. Okay, so that's the object. Let's talk about the economics of the trip. Um, I didn't study economics, but I do remember some of the concepts from a couple classes I took. Things like opportunity costs and risk management and decision-making. So I want to take some time and analyze this story through the, through the eyes of an economist, right? And th the functions that were in play there. We didn't read about it, but, but right before this story starts, um, they have to get to the other side. And it's, it turns out it's no simple task. There's a, it seems like always, these fishermen, whenever they get out in the middle of the lake, there's a storm, right? And <laughs> Jesus, um, if he hadn't performed a miracle, this is the one where he's sleeping, right? They wake him up and it's just, he hushes. And um, it seems like, Maybe they wouldn't have made it even. We don't know that, obviously. But, um, so there was a risk to the safety of the missionaries on the short-term trip, right? And with any risk, you have to ask the question, well, is it worth the risk, right? There's another risk, though, that would probably have weighed even more for the disciples. It was the what will, other thinks, what will others think factor, right? This element is probably more significant than we realize. In the clean, unclean culture of the Jews, Traveling to this pagan land would no doubt compromise their clean status, which we know would essentially have made them at the very least temporarily outcasts in their community. That's the way it worked, right? But even had they carefully plotted their course and somehow not touched any of the pigs or the remains and, and not become ritually unclean, would their community believe what they had to report when they returned? Probably not. It would have just been assumed, You're, you got unclean over there, you went over there, right? The answer is, yeah, it would be nearly impossible. So, so whether they made themselves unclean or not, the risk they took was that they would be seen as unclean upon their return. So there's another risk involved. And sometimes those risks weigh, weigh even more, right? And you have to ask yourself, is it worth the risk? Another factor to consider when, when analyzing this through an economist's glasses um, are the financial considerations, Right? So at first glance, it might seem insignificant to examine those. Um, you know, the disciples probably had cheap access to the necessary watercraft. They didn't need much food or anything, so they weren't breaking the bank with, with their expenditures on this trip. But, but it seems like Jesus does something that is, seems unnecessary. And these, the expenses that he incurs, I'm sure would have raised objections from ascending church and caused... Uh, it causes our careful analysis to ask the question, was it worth it? So Jesus has this curious conversation with a legion of demons. And the result of this conversation is some sort of agreement that they come to where the demons agree to leave the possessed man under the condition that Jesus allowed them to go into this nearby herd of pigs. And I have to admit I'm confused as to why Jesus would allow this, especially since I'm sure he knew what was going to happen. I don't think that was a surprise to him when the, when the, when the pigs took off. Um, I'm sure he knew it would happen. And, 
the other question I have is, since when does Jesus have to give in to the request of misbehaving demons? I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but whatever the reason, Jesus complies, and the result is 2,000 pigs march like lemmings down the steep banks into the sea to their death. So I googled the going price of a pig in today's dollar amounts. According to Google, the loss of swine on that day is equivalent to between $600,000 and $2 million. Animals are worth a lot. If, you, if you're not around them, sometimes that goes, goes un, unseen. So suddenly, the financial costs of this trip are very significant. They beg the question, was it worth it? And how about if we analyze the results? So we looked at the risks. The risks were steep. The, the costs were big. What about the results? And we're asking the question, was it worth it? If we know the results, sometimes those can outweigh the, the risks and the costs, right? I'm also almost certain that based on what we have to go with, the results of this trip would have been seen as inconsequential to many. So let's look at the numbers. We'll start with the numbers. With respects to results, the number we have is one. One person. Not very impressive. But don't worry, it gets worse, right? <laughs> Because when we see it through the eyes of the cultures involved, it is one worthless person. For the Greeks, he's a valueless nuisance. For the Jews, he's an unclean pagan. He was certainly not a person of influence, nor would we have called him a natural leader. He was a lost nobody, and even when healed and changed, what good could he do? So maybe the numbers would have actually come back as less than one. But even if we give this man the benefit of the doubt and count his life as, as a full one, what was done to ensure his impact of those around him? Was he given scriptures translated into his native tongue? No. Was he given a, even a Hebrew scriptures and said, well, good luck with this, but at least you got it, you know? No. Was he given any type of follow-up or indoctrination? How about someone to disciple the man? Was a church planted? Did the man go through leadership training? Was he taken away for some time to grow before he was released back as a missionary? No. The answer to all these questions is simply no. At the end, it seems... He is begging Jesus for some follow-up. But of all the beggars in the story this day, there's three sets. The demons, the townspeople, and this man. This man is strangely the only request that Jesus denies. So from a result standpoint, this trip was a failure and once again begs the question, was it worth it? Was it worth it? This trip represented significant risks to both the disciples and their reputation. The costs are beyond comprehension. The results are so small they can barely be measured. From an economic standpoint, this trip was not worth it. So let's go on to my third point. Let's consider the purpose of this trip. I would argue that I've analyzed the object in economics and the conclusion is, I think I've got strong evidence to say this is not worth it. And you could take those same arguments and apply it on a more general scale. Are missions worth it? A lot of risks, a lot of money, right? Consider that missions when compared to this trip Jesus took with his disciples, is far riskier to human life, right? In the end, it was, there was a storm, but no one died, right? I could cite thousands of lives given for the cause to support that case. Not only that, but as we focus in on these two billion people who are still isolated, the fact is that the situations that these people live in, the governments and the belief systems, that are, they're set wholly against the spread of the gospel, there are easily thousands of more martyrs to come before we get to the end of this task. We're, we're, we haven't arrived yet, right? Also consider that missions, when compared to this trip, is far costlier than 2,000 pigs. 
Not only that, but the financial needs that remain to complete God's mission, one could easily argue they're far greater for what is still before us than the billions, maybe even into the trillions of dollars we've spent in the last 2,000 years getting to where we're at. Okay? Thankfully, missions do have many inspiring stories of changed families, tribes, even nations, right? But the fact is that each of these successes, if we look at results, for each of them, there are dozens and dozens of stories that don't enjoy the ideal ending and results. There are many stories of missionaries who dedicate their entire lives to reaching a people and don't get to see any fruit or a significant fruit, right? So before we draw the conclusion, have I convinced you that missions is not worth it? (laughs) So before we draw that conclusion and therefore make my sermon a complete disaster, there's two things we have to do. We have to consider two perspectives. And this is all under the, and and out of that we'll get the purpose, right? First, consider the perspective of the man who was, was possessed. The primary reason I love this story so much is because a shoe shiner explained it to me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Randy, I'm the demon-possessed man. And Jesus singled me out. He took great risks. He spent lots of money, and he came and he healed and he saved me. And as I listened to him, it wasn't long before I realized that I too am the demon-possessed man. And Jesus took great risks and costs to heal and save me. After all, it's through men and women crossing lakes and oceans that Jesus arrived here to our world. It was through missions that Jesus arrived at my front door. I used to live in a tomb. I was dead in my sins. The story is the, my story is the shoeshiner's story, is the demon-possessed man's story. And when we realize that the worthless object of this trip is actually the priceless object of God's love, the results that at first glance seem to be maybe even less than one, they just skyrocket and they become infinite. If we flip a couple pages into, I think it's Mark 6, the future of this, of this story, we can make some encouraging observations. So we know Jesus returned later to the Decapolis. And upon returning, we read that people recognized him and large crowds gathered to be healed by him. So it can't be said for certain, but it is a reasonable assumption to think that the fame of Jesus was at least in part spread by the testimony of this once possessed man telling his friends how much the Lord had done for him, which is what Jesus had instructed him to do. When we weigh in the power at work through the man, through the sharing of his testimony, the value of the results are multiplied, and and they eventually just get out of control, the multiplication of discipleship, right? So that was, that's the perspective from the man's point of view. Let's, let's look at it also from God's perspective. What's in all this mission stuff for God? We can see that the objects of missions have much to gain if they are reached and everything to lose if they're not. And it's very common and tempting, and I do it all the time, to measure missions via the way it changes the objects of mission, Right? People, people are lost. It's true. People need Jesus. It's true. And it's very common and tempting to, to do that. However, salvation and healing and all the benefits, which are benefits, there are great benefits, I really see them as secondary benefits. The primary beneficiary is God himself, and the pri- benef- primary benefit is his glory. That's right. Right? So let me explain. God is altogether worthy of all the praise and glory. I mean, that's that's a month of sermons we could talk and unpack that, but 
I'm just going to state it here. Each lost sheep has a unique way of worshiping God that no one else can provide in the same unique way. So as the throne room is filled with these unique worshipers, giving their one-of-a-kind worship to the king, the perfectly worthy and deserving king receives greater honor and glory. And I can also say that any worshiper that is not contributing his or her worship is in effect robbing the Lord of his deserved glory. So from God's perspective, the risks and costs are well worth the results. No matter how big the risks and costs and no matter how minimal the results may seem. So even so, though, what is the risk of life to the creator and sustainer of life? What is $2 million to the one who owns a 1,000 cattle on a 1,000 hills? Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, I love it, he, he actually assigns the title prodigal, which we usually assign to the son. He assigns it to, God, to, the, to the father in the story, which is essentially assigning it to God, and he calls it the prodigal God. Um, because prodigal, the word means spending money or resources freely or recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And I can think of few better words to describe the way God goes about his mission. You don't get the idea when reading the story that Jesus is even focused on the danger of the storm, the price of pigs, the large number of demons. Jesus is focused and nothing is able to, to, to take his focus off this man. His purpose for this trip is to seek and save his lost child. And now that I'm a parent, that, that becomes much more, I, I, you know, you get those fears. What happens, you know, those moments where you're like, where's Where's Xander? And you're just heart singing. That's, that's Jesus, right? He's looking for his lost child. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time in the last several weeks studying and thinking about the story. And as I ask myself the question, why did Jesus make this trip and what is he trying to teach me? It brings me to this simplified application. Go. Jesus is teaching his disciples to go into uncomfortable places but actually, I want to change the word a bit because the lesson here is even richer than just go. Right? The command go is how we often hear it because of the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. But to be honest, I don't like how it sounds. <laughs> so you might say, well, you can't do that. This is, you know, Scripture. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least in English, I don't think the command go really conveys what Jesus is modeling in the story. Go brings it with the idea of go away, leave, Right? It implies separating yourself and departing alone. And that is not at all the idea here. You've got to look at the bookends of the Great Commission to get the full idea. It starts with the command, go, and it ends with a promise that says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So when you combine these two things, go, and I am with you, this command to go, this promise, I am with you, I think it's better summarized in Jesus' invitation. He says it all the time follow me. You see, Jesus is not the general of the army calling the shots from the safety of headquarters for all the soldiers to carry out on the battlefield. No, Jesus is the king that rides into battle leading the way, inspiring his warriors with his, by his own courage. Today's Palm Sunday, the day we remember Jesus arriving to Jerusalem for the last time. And we know the story, or maybe we don't, but the story goes like this. Um, that journey starts with crowds shouting Hosanna. We sang it today, right? In one week, those shouts would change to crucify him. And his life would end on a cross outside the city walls, abandoned by all and executed like a criminal. There is no place more uncomfortable than the cross. 
Jesus is not asking us to do anything greater than what he is willing and already did himself. And while he did it alone, the promise for us is that we don't have to. Jesus invites us to follow him to uncomfortable places. If we look back into Mark 4, we see in verse 35 that the whole trip was Jesus' idea. It says, it says, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. The disciples would never have made that trip without Jesus' lead. That didn't come from them. And by the way, this is a little side note. I'm not just talking about geographically uncomfortable places, right? Following Jesus means we wade into relationally uncomfortable places as well. Think about that annoying relative, the obnoxious neighbor, even the cruel enemy. Left to our own devices, we avoid those places at all costs. But to follow Jesus means venturing into uncomfortable places that he leads us to and watching him do miracles. Remember how I started the sermon? A bar in Bolivia, prison in Colombia, sharing a bed in the Dominican, lugging suitcases across the field in Bolivia. How did I end up in each of those situations? Those places were never on my radar. They're not, they weren't part of my, in fact, they were kind of contradictory to my trajectory that I'd set. I imagine the disciples had the same questions as they arrived on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right? You kind of get the idea they don't even get out of the boat, right? And I can just see Peter kind of going to John saying, what on earth are we doing here? Well, the answer for the disciples is the same for me. We followed Jesus to these places. And it was in the early morning hours, (laughs) probably three in the morning, I was in that bar in Bolivia Something occurred to me. The time and time I find myself saying the same thing. Following Jesus has taken me places I would never have gone otherwise. And if we don't follow Jesus to the other side of the lake, God is going to be robbed of the unique worship from two billion of his children. A list of people that take 63 years to read will live and die without ever presenting the perfectly worthy king with their unique way of saying, you are the best. So Jesus' message for us all this morning is this curious combination of go and I am with you always that I think is very well summed up in the invitation, follow me. It comes with a warning. You're not necessarily going to feel at ease and it may not be the places you would have chosen, but the purpose of the trip is well worth it. You see, we're not going to venture into North Korea following our own plans. The tiny Buddhist tribe high in the Nepal mountains is not on our way to the grocery store. That obnoxious neighbor is so much easier to just avoid than lovingly confront. The Muslim family living in Saudi Arabia will not show up at our 1030 church service. When Jesus says, follow me, get in the boat. That's my message. Let me pray. Lord, help me to follow you. That's what I want to do. I want to do with my life. Thank you for this congregation here and even in the last 12, 24 hours as I've arrived here, I've learned so much about Vermont and the mission field that it is Lord and I hope that the words that you put on my heart will be a challenge for this congregation they would also um, be encouraged to know, I, I imagine it's hard but the promise the command of go is, is held closely to the promise that you're with us, Lord. And so help us to go, whether that's overseas, whether that's down the hallway, whatever it is, Lord, because it is well worth it, Lord.
you, Jesus. In your name we pray.